Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad you had you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Dave. Great. Almost done with the semester and, and now done after this show with, with this season. So it's uh, nice to go into May tomorrow and, and uh, have a little more free time anyway, before we get back on third season three, which is somewhat sometime later in July, right? We'll say more about that later. Yeah, that's right. It's all these things are winding down all at once. Just had my last class uh, the semester. I got some grading to do. So not done yet, but it's kind of the calm before the storm as the students are writing their papers and, and doing their exams. I can catch my breath a little bit. Got some projects to finish up. So looking forward to that. And it's meanwhile, beautiful here, 70 degrees and sunny. And so we're, we're getting some real nice spring weather. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to cut the grass probably this afternoon. But other than that, it's, it's all good. It's like Pasadena on a bad day. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, we're going to lead off. There were two real big stories this last week. Uh, the president's speech to Congress on Wednesday, as well as Senator Scott's reply, and then the release of the new CDC COVID guidelines on Tuesday. So we're going to look at the speeches in the grade book and talk those through and, and give them grades a little bit later on the show. So we're going to start here by looking at those new CDC guidelines, which focused on what can you do if you're fully vaccinated? which is a population that now includes both of us, Dave. So a uh, step in the right direction. But if, if you looked on the CDC site, they put together this nice color-coded chart. And if you're unvaccinated, you're on one side of that chart. If you're vaccinated, you're on the other side of the chart. And there's 14 different items. They go through five outside, nine inside, things like uh, attending a worship service or going to a sporting event, getting your hair cut, uh, meeting with small groups, going to a restaurant, these kind of things. And just basically... The level of risk, this was the idea, the level of risk, and, and what do you do, or, you know, under what conditions is it safe or, or not quite as safe to do that particular activity. Uh, so uh, the good news, if you're fully vaccinated, according to the CDC, is that all 14 of these activities are, are given the label safest. So all, all these things you can do. And if you're unvaccinated, only three things are listed as safest, uh, five less safe and six least safe. So if the question is, does getting the vaccine, according to the CDC, allow you to get out of the house, connect with other people, do some things you haven't been doing, maybe, uh, then the answer is yes. But on the other hand, if the question is, can I get back to something like normal life? And in particular, can I dump this mask? The CDC says, not so fast. So only four of those 14 things that it's safe to do, according to the CDC, is it safe for vaccinated people to do without a mask. Uh, so you can exercise outside. You can attend a small outdoor gathering with others who are fully vaccinated or with those that aren't, if it's small and outdoors. And you can dine outside at a restaurant. So four things all outside, according to the CDC, you can do without a mask. But everything else on their list, you still need to wear the mask. And it was interesting because this morning on the Today Show, President Biden was asked about this by the host and, you know, basically, are we going to start to see you without a mask? And it looks like his idea is, is even more restrictive than that that we see in these new CDC guidelines. So let's 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 listen to this from President Biden. CDC guidance this week about outdoor mask wearing. Yeah. A lot of folks excited that they can now shed these masks if they've been double vaccinated. Um, are, are you going to be one of these folks now? We no longer going to see the president of the United States outside with a mask on? Sure. Sure. I mean, but what I'm going to do, though, because the likelihood of my being able to be outside and people not come up to me is not very, very high. So it's like, look, you and I took our masks off when I came in because look at the distance we are. But if we were, in fact, sitting there talking to one another close, I'd have my mask on and I might you'd have a mask, even though we've both been vaccinated. And so it's it's, it's a small precaution to take that has a profound impact. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. It's making sure that your wife, your children, your, if, you're, if in fact they haven't been vaccinated, making sure that they're not going to get sick. All right, Dave, so you heard the president. Patriotic duty, what do you make of it all? 
I think it's ridiculous. I just, I, I don't even, I, I don't understand the logic of two people who are sitting down, who have been vaccinated, wearing masks. That is exactly what the CDC suggested, right? That, that, that somehow now vaccination ought to equate with safety. But if that's not the case, then why are you doing it? Are you just simply doing it for appearance sake? And you know, I read this uh, really interesting article about uh, a lady runner who said that I'm going to continue to wear my mask running, not because it does anything, uh, but because it virtue signals to others uh, that I care about their feelings. And my, my problem with that is virtue signaling to others that you care about their feelings uh, while at the same time you are diminishing uh, their way of life because you're not awakening them to reality or the truth, I think is the wrong way to approach, you know, how we ought to make choices about our lives. Uh, is there more uh, responsibility that we have to care for others' feelings or to live in accordance with what we know the truth to be as far as we can tell what it is? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a case to be made, you know, like a, a weaker brother kind of case on this that you can say, well, you know, in a situation where I know that a person has concerns, um, that I can accommodate those concerns and I can wear a mask, even though maybe there's really no need for me to do that. And, and maybe especially in a case where people wouldn't know me, you know, it's, it's a larger group setting, right? And they might not know whether I'm, I'm being reckless or I'm, I'm not being reckless. Um, but the strange thing with, with the Biden comment about this being a patriotic duty is that, you know, he, he then connects it to keeping people safe, Right, as if you're just as much a risk to other people if you have been vaccinated as you would be if you haven't been vaccinated. And that, that doesn't make any sense, right? That, 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 that's the part of it that you can't reconcile with any sort of accommodation to the feelings or the concerns of others or the conscience of others. It, it's, it's suggesting that there's not really any actual medical advantage. And, and that's where you know, Philip Klein goes and commenting on this, he was the one that brought this clip at least to my attention and, and many others through National Review. Uh, that, look, if you're really trying to get people to be vaccinated, this is not the way to do it. Right? Well, yeah, I, I, might, I would say just for that reason, I, I think you bring up a good point. Why can't you have someone who's gotten a vaccine, uh, who is not a <clears throat> danger, wear like a, a green wristband or something like that, so that you tell another, right, that you're not being irresponsible, you actually have gotten the vac vaccination. You know, why aren't you, why aren't we, um, really emphasizing vaccination and its good result. If you, if you do the op, if you say get vaccinated, but it's not going to mean a thing in terms of what you can do thereafter, it's just kind of silly. You know, I was uh, watching baseball last night and the Red Sox are in, in Texas uh, at, the, at the Rangers. And it was amazing difference between watching the Red Sox in Fenway Park. So, you know, I've been watching most of their home games a little bit before bed, watch a few winnings at least. And, you know, Fenway is just empty. Uh, the average attendance is 4,600. Of course, it's not because there's not more people that would want, want to go to the game, but but that's what the restrictions are. It's 15% limit or whatever the exact percentage is. And so, you know, their normal attendance is 35, 36,000 a game, and it's down to 4,600. And of course, a small group like that, I mean, they're just you know, clump here and clump there. You know, early season weather is not great anyway. So it's it's a little bit of a hardy group that's coming out to Fenway Park, and they don't look like they're entirely enjoying themselves. So then you go and you look at Texas and I mean, it's like I'm back in 2019, 24,000 people a game in Texas, which is the number one attendance, Houston's number two, 24,000 a game is almost what their attendance was back in 2019. And you see nobody's in a mask. They're all sitting, they're just doing their thing. They're just at a ball game, right? And it looks like you're, you're having a flashback. So, I mean, they're, they're getting back to that in Texas, but, but it's a very different world in Massachusetts, at least at this stage of the baseball season. We'll have to keep an eye on this, obviously. And, you know, the, by the time we come back with our, our next episode, uh, we may have further developments, hopefully many, many more people vaccinated and we'll be back to uh, something closer to normal life. But I think it's something that we're going to have to push, right? This is not going to happen top down. This is going to have to be a bottom up effort on the part of the people to, to reassert their normal way of life, because it doesn't seem like it's going to be easily handed to them by our political class. It's been a, a very uh, powerful year for our political class uh, when a lot of the country turns to it for advice on so many aspects of human life that it 
is not used to doing. So I, I, that can't be a long-term trend um, if it's going to be a, uh, something good for the Republic. Um, we can't simply be there waiting for others to signal to us what we should do in every instance and let uh, our muscles um, of common sense grow flabby all along the way. You know, that's a good transition point to our required reading and headlines, which we're doing something uh, special for this week. We, as we mentioned last time, we've got a, a special interview with our, with our mentor and advisor. Dave, I'll let you take it away from there. So it's great pleasure to introduce uh, our mentor, uh, Angelo, Dr. Angelo uh, Cotavilla. Uh, I think we know a little bit about him, Matt, but I had to go to his Wikipedia page to really get the official uh, byline where he's uh, identified as a philosopher. And, uh, and, and thereafter, what is told about him is his service in the U.S. Navy as an officer, a foreign service officer, a professional staff member of the Select Committee on Intelligence of the United States Senate. Uh, Dr. Cotaville's books and articles have ranged from French and Italian politics to the thoughts of Machiavelli and Montesquieu to arms control, war, the technology of ballistic missile defenses, and a broad range of international topics. Um, you can find Dr. Cotaville's articles and commentary, Foreign Affairs, National Review, and The New Republic. Op-eds have also appeared in The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. Uh, we both know him, uh, having met him in 1995. Uh, I remember another teaching assistant telling me, you know, there's this really conservative guy, as if that was a, a crazy thing in graduate school, which it is. Uh, and I don't want to TA for him. He just, he, he believes in, in that uh, war may be a good thing because it, it ends up with the peace that you desire and all these kind of crazy theories. And he likes Machiavelli and all the rest. And uh, it sounded really interesting to me as another TA. And, and then he said, well, I'll trade you beer for the semester. We switch TA positions. Uh, and at that point, I, <laughs> who could give up beer for a semester in Boston at, at $5 a pint? Uh, but um, I was enough I, to seal the deal, huh? That sealed the deal. Right? But <laughs> uh, chance. Uh, I remember meeting Dr. Cotavilla for the first time, which is, a tw it was 25 years ago this spring, which is kind of crazy. And, uh, and he, he said famously to me, uh, after asking me what I was interested in, he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be president. Now that hasn't happened, uh, but, uh, but he also has been a, a great mentor in many other ways. I'm, I'm sure the same goes for you, Matt, uh, as someone who uh, is, a devoted husband, um, loves his wife, a devoted father, uh, and um, loves God. And uh, that's, that's hard to come by in graduate school. So it's a great pleasure uh, to have you on the show today, Dr. Cotavilla, to, to discuss uh, your latest writing, American Exodus. How are you doing today? I'm better than I deserve. You always say that, and there's a story to that. But we, we won't get into that today. But um, this, this piece that you wrote for Tablet Magazine, about a month back, uh, talks about an exodus, but a lot of the beginning of the piece deals with where the American regime is in the year 2021. Uh, can you tell us why you wrote the piece and where things stand uh, and why you focused on oligarchy to define uh, the world that we live in right now politically? Ever since 2016, America has changed drastically. We are living, all of us who don't have to be <laughs> of a certain age, I mean, all that we have to be is something other than, than uh, pre-teens, uh, remember a, a very, very different way of life. None of us could have imagined uh, being forced to, or nearly forced, uh, or highly pressured to wear masks, uh, and uh, to, uh, none of us could have imagined that uh, the social media that uh, we had imagined were vehicles of, of, of free expression would become means of, of um, frustrating free expression, of mandating political and social orthodoxy. We, uh, we look back with, we don't have to have an awfully good memory to, uh, to realize that the things that many of the things that we are told today are right, indeed the essence of rightness, uh, were in a few, few years back considered wrong in the essence of wrongness. For example, the the uh, uh, the notion that uh, one could uh, that a man could become a woman, a woman could become a man simply by uh, by wishing. 
these are these are not small things. And uh, perhaps the most um, compelling thing about all of them is that uh, we, the people, have had no choice in the matter. We are supposed to live under laws made by elected uh, representatives, uh, but none of these things have been forced upon us by law. Uh, but there they are. And so that raises the question, what are ordinary people to, to, to do about essentially a revolution in the way they in their lives, uh, not uh, nothing theoretical, but their practical in, in how they live, revolution and what they think is good or, or bad, uh, uh, what they have to do about it, uh, because they cannot do anything apparently about it by exercising the vote. Furthermore, we've seen that uh, the oligarchy, that, well, the powers that be, let's, uh, for the moment, let me uh, leave it at that, uh, have taken pride, vide an article in Time magazine, in describing just how they, um, they manipulated the vote so as to uh, get a, a, the result that they wanted. So if you can't do that, and you really don't want to live the way that is being mandated, well, what are you going to do? Well, the uh, reasonable thing, the only reasonable thing to do is to leave, is to go away. Uh, you could, uh, in, in effect, mount a counter-revolution, but then when you ask yourself what, what that would take, uh, you realize that what it would take would be an awful lot of blood. And uh, shedding a lot of blood is bad, not just for the people whose blood is being shed, but for the people who do the shedding. Because uh, that's not why we live our lives. Uh, we don't live our lives to, to uh, oppress anybody else, even though they may wish to oppress us. And so what are we going to do? Well, best thing to do is to leave uh, I uh, was asked to write for the uh, for the tablet magazine, which is of course very very Jewish, and the um, they chose to to publish it right at Passover, and so the title Exodus <laughs> there was uh, was entirely entirely appropriate. Uh, there's also the fact that uh, the ex the original Exodus happened only after the conditions of slavery in Egypt had become intolerable. That slavery had, be, had been tolerated by the children of Israel for uh, hundreds of years, but lately they had just, the, um, the Egyptians had gone too far. And so, and so leaving is, became the right thing to do. Now, we haven't got a Moses and um, uh, the and so, and so in some way, and nobody is talking about uh, crossing the Atlantic Ocean uh, on, on dry land or the Pacific, for that matter. Uh, so, what does leaving this the powers that be mean? That's what the article was about. So, why call it oligarchy? Ah, well, because uh, that really defines what it is. I mean, this is. Aristotle talking 2,500 years ago, what uh, the American regime had been what Aristotle called a mixed regime. Uh, it contained elements of, uh, of power exercised by the, by the many uh, through uh, houses, primarily the House of Representatives, but to some extent the Senate as well. Uh, and the state legislatures, by the few, uh, we're talking about uh, the wealthy who have always existed, the, the, uh, the influential people have always exercised influence, and the one, we, we do elect the president uh, who, exercise, who embodies in America the executive, the the executive is the president and nobody else. Over time, Aristotle tells us, and we have all experienced, uh, mixed regimes change. 
as one part of the mixture becomes more powerful than the other. And over the past hundred years, little by little by little, we have seen the, the, the power of the few overwhelm all of the others. The presidency, uh, uh, one need no look no farther than Joseph Biden to see that, that uh, he is by no means in charge. He is, in fact, tending to the needs, the expressed needs of the, uh, of, of, of the few uh, who surround him. And um, as for the many, why uh, we've seen, especially in the last election cycle, how their views can just simply be shunted aside. So uh, this is a classic Aristotelian oligarchy. Specifically, it means that the people who exercise power are validated in their so doing by one another. They don't have to have, they don't have to have, they don't want, they don't need, uh, there's true, any, um, Validation by by the people, by the many, or by any notion of right or wrong. They simply validate one another. Uh, notice, by the way, how these people are constantly mouthing exactly, precisely the same words by which they validate one another's um, desires, whatever. So that is, again, that, that is a classic oligarchy. It is not a perfect oligarchy, though, because Aristotle had common sense. And by the way, they're all, they're all for the same thing. <laughs> Tells us that uh, a successful oligarchy, a successful democracy, successful anything, uh, must aim at its own preservation. And uh, what this oligarchy is doing is less that, you know, they have to require making peace with the other elements, holding them under, but making peace with them. No, this oligarchy insults and, and harasses the many. Now, this is not a recipe for long life. Yeah, you say that that, that can't be undone, that this, the insults can't be unsaid, and the feelings engendered by them can't be forgotten. Right, right, right. Insult is, is far more powerful than injury. Uh, so this is a, a, an unstable oligarchy that somehow feels that it has to be ever nastier to put down uh, possible rebellion. There's less rebellion there than they think, but but they are obviously stimulating more. Um, they are not the brightest, the sharpest knives in the drawer, these folks. We've been talking about democracy in America for the whole season here, and we've kind of got to the end of the work and the rise of democratic despotism. And, you know, I, I'm wondering, maybe for our listeners, is there a connection between the development of the democratic despotism that de Tocqueville describes and the emergence of this oligarchy as, as the people become more quiescent, as that government becomes more paternalistic, as... In Tocqueville's words, they become less than men, while more than kings. Uh, every four years, when they get to vote, is 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 there something natural, perhaps, in this development? Is, is oligarchy maybe the final stage of of democratic despotism, as it's being described by the Tocqueville? I don't think so. Although the the, the connection that you mentioned does exist, and here's how I see that connection could be wrong. But what Tocqueville's talking about is a uh, homogenization of public opinion. And it is that homogenization of public opinion that has rendered the American people quiescent. There has been a belief, a, grow, a, a solid belief, and that has been one of the strengths of the American regime, that um, we all sort of see things in the same way, and uh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> What's happening right now is the negation of all of that. You have the American people uh, uh, gradually waking up and saying, no, it's not okay. Uh, there's something else. What I'm seeing here uh, in the state legislatures, in the thousands of people who are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who are abandoning the public schools, who are um, abandoning the institutions, who are ex exiting the the um, 
the framework uh, that exists is the reverse of that process that Tocqueville uh, had described. It took a long time for the American people to become faithful, <laughs> to, 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 to get the kind of implicit faith in the system. And that is being broken down really rather quickly. In your piece, Dr. Cotavilla, you identify three key tools uh, available uh, in this exodus. Uh, America's legal structures, uh, the tradition of state and local autonomy, and, quote, our Tocquevillian tastes for organizing ourselves into ad hoc groups for the common benefit, end quote. So how do we use these to our advantage? Uh, wh why these three things? And they all seem very Tocquevillian uh, as, as kind of remedies for uh, sure. where we go from here. Well, uh, the, the latter is, uh, is most obvious. I mean, nobody organizes like Americans organize. That used to be more true than it is, but it is still true that Americans have the trust that Americans habitually place in one another uh, leads them to say, okay, you do this, I'll do that, and we'll work together. Uh, very few peoples on the face of the earth can, can do things like that. Americans do that all the time. That, however, does not take away the need for leadership. Uh, you can have um, that kind of grassroots revolt uh, all over the place. Uh, for example, as is happening with regard to schools, the um, abandonment of uh, uh, public schools is, is happening you know, at breakneck pace. But at what point does it break the teachers' unions? Uh, at what point does it break the monopoly of textbooks, of textbook publishers? So for that, you, you need a larger framework to which these people can attach themselves. So that's, uh, that's where top-level leadership comes in, and that's why, that's why it is so essential. So far, we do not have that in this country. Uh, the closest we, uh, we have is Governor DeSantis of Florida, who essentially says uh, is exempting the, as, as, as best he can the citizens of uh, Florida from the mess that is going on and saying, well, you know, that mess may be going on elsewhere, but it's not going to happen here in Florida. Uh, fine, that's very good. Uh, but um, it would help so much if he, this governor, the governor of Texas, the governor of Idaho, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, were to get together and say, well, these things ain't happening here. And by the way, this is right and that is wrong. Perhaps the best example of what is not happening and of what, is, of what uh, needs to happen is this idiocy concerning masks. Now, there is no scientific argument regarding the uselessness of these damn things. And yet, all you've got is one senator, Rand Paul, saying so out loud. Uh, you don't have, I mean, my own senator from Wyoming, uh, John Barrasso, is, is also a physician. He knows this as well as any, any literate person. He doesn't say it. You don't have a national leader or would-be national leader to say, follow me. You, I'm just, you, I, I'm, I'm really confused here, though. I, I thought yesterday that there was a great discovery and <laughs> it was revealed that we don't need to wear masks outside any longer. Is that, are you saying that's not true? That This is the whole point, that uh, these, um, these pronouncements from the Centers for Disease Control are purely political things, there has never been any scientific argument in favor of wearing, you know, for the general population wearing masks. Now, if you are, in fact, approaching a um, uh, severely infected person, why, or if you yourself are uh, peculiarly liable to, to, uh, to infection, you damn well better wear a mask and not one of these stupid things either. You better wear a serious mask. I mean, I know this for a fact, among other reasons, because I, I am a heart transplant patient. And immediately after the transplant, for about a month, I wore masks that, um, that would 
they're far more effective than than what surgeons wear in surgery, uh, because I was unusually uh, liable to um, to infection, unusually immunosuppressed. Well, but there is no argument that ordinary people in ordinary circumstances are protected in any way by by cloth over your face. That's just simply not the case. And no, no one can give you a scientific argument for why this is so. And yet you are politically bludgeoned into, um, into believing this. And why? In practice, the answer is because you don't have national leadership that says, hey, so it just isn't. Well, somebody else says so. They can say it all they want. Like the priests of Baal, they can dance around the, the pyre all they want. It's not going to make any difference. It's just not so. So let's maybe talk a little bit more about what the exodus looks like. And you mentioned education earlier and and maybe just building on your, your last remark. It seems like some of this is about political leadership. Some of this is about maybe particular bills, legislation. And some of this is just about an attitude, a kind of willingness to say no um, to some things and say yes to other things. Um, but maybe let's, let's talk more about education uh, you write about school choice movement, which you know has been on the scene for uh, as long as I've been an adult as as one of those conservative ideas that people have a lot of energy behind, but it's never really been able to get enough momentum behind it politically to get a majority. We, we've had you know charter schools have done well over the last say decade or two, but school choice, kind of a pure school choice, has never seemed like it's been a political winner. Well, it it, it does now. <laughs> You know, uh, it, it takes uh, an event for things to become clear that were not clear to others before. Another thing which has clarified matters is the series of lawsuits that have been brought against uh, Ivy League universities concerning the, their uh, uh, their discrimination against not just Asians, but against anyone who scores too high. On what basis are these people admitted? No, they're not admitted on the basis of excessive intelligence. They're, they're admitted on the basis of requisite conformity. Oh, well, the moment you begin to say of a Harvard graduate or Stanford graduate, gosh, he must be smart to, oh, he must just be a, a cipher. Uh, the moment you start identifying these people as ciphers rather than the than geniuses, it's all over for them. Uh, so much for education. Now, the, uh, one thing I have not uh, touched, and this is this is hard, very hard thing. There are we we have a system of courts, and uh, we have activist judges. We have uh, even a, a Supreme Court, which was able to muster a majority uh, behind the proposition that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. What happens when these courts? order you to believe these things and to act accordingly? By what right do you obey or disobey? What happens when you, when you say, Andrew Jackson said, well, you have spoken, now go ahead and enforce it. Uh, well, what happens is that you are exiting the, this framework. You are exiting this, this thing under which we are living. And it helps an awful lot to understand that this thing we are exiting is no longer the republic that it ceased to be the republic some time ago, that it is something else, that it is an oligarchy. And those who wish to live republican lives have to do so in part by, by rejecting this, by calling this thing under which we are living by its rightful name as we exit it. You can't exit it without calling it by its rightful name. On the question of exiting it, uh Two of us are in California right now, and, and one is in the state of New York. Does this exodus require a physical exodus, say a move to well, no, the state of, of Texas? Okay. Ex explain then, explain to Californians and New Yorkers what this exodus would look like when a lot of them feel outnumbered. Well, um, uh, look to look to your own. Uh, that's what it looks like. You... You don't have to regard uh, what you are living under as legitimate when it is not. That's, it is simply that. Now, um, look, I, I, I speak as I do in part because of my own uh, 
former existence as an Italian. <laughs> who have a great deal of experience living under illegitimate governments. <laughs> and uh, the, um, uh, they've had a measure of success in doing so. Uh, not entirely, but what you do that. Now, uh, a vineyard helps that's 18 acres with people. nice grapes, though. You, you have to admit that. Well, oh, no, no, listen, uh, uh, the state of California physically is gorgeous. There's nothing like it. And you'll, after you've been in Texas for a while, you will, you will <laughs> yearn for, for those fresh breezes coming in from the ocean uh, because they don't, <laughs> they they don't, don't come from the Gulf. One of the points that you make repeatedly in the article is the power of, of numbers. Uh, they, they can't fire you all. Right, that that the, the the way that cancel culture works is it's one person at a time, and then everybody else who feels similarly situated says, "Oh, that could be me next." Right, yeah. and so by having these isolated individuals taken down, the ripple effects, of course, are That's much right. wider. Which is why leaders, national leadership, is so important. You who live in New York and California and us can can say, "Hey." We are not alone. We are part of this much, much, much bigger thing. You mess with me here in California. You're not just messing with us. You're messing with with um, the rest of, of the United States of America, or what used to be the United States of America. Uh, the, the oligarchy is fragile in many ways. Uh, much of it is corporate. And these corporate CEOs are not, repeat, not heroes. They are ideologues, yes, but they're only secondarily ideologues. Most of all, they are money grubbers. Uh, and they, and Wall Street is, um, places certain demands on them. Uh, if their sales go down by 20%, never mind 50 or 60%, their extraordinarily fancy uh, uh, compensation goes away. And they don't want that. They don't want that any more than, than they want. Uh, they want this, a lot less than they want to, to assert the, the, the beauties of Black Lives Matter. So uh, the importance of people in California and New York acting as part of a national movement is extremely important. You don't have to live in Florida or Texas to be part of this. You can boycott Coca-Cola uh, in Pasadena as well as uh, in Tampa. And so it goes. Is Trumpism the, the national leadership that you're calling for? Is it a conduit to the exodus that you see uh, that is appealing? What, what parts of it are good? What parts of it could be discarded for the better? Well, well, well thanks for the question. Uh, I didn't touch on that in uh, in that article. There, uh, there's another article of mine which very much uh, should be read. The title of it is Clarity, and it was published in American Greatness. Donald Trump, whether he liked it or not, whether he meant to or not, was the indispensable catalyst for the for the the, the gelling, tightening of the oligarchy that we have seen. It, he was that because he was what um, Theodore Roosevelt warned against. He was he personified the the unbridled tongue with the unready hand. He, uh, starting with his very first month in office, he showed that he uh, that his uh, he would bark loudly but bite little, if at all. Uh, by January of 2017, nobody was afraid of him. Now, uh, Donald Trump uh, did one indispensable thing, one indispensably good thing. He insulted the oligarchs. He insulted the system. He called them out. Now, that is absolutely indispensable. Uh, anyone who, who bids for leadership of, of the United States of America, of the Republicans and Republicans with a small r in uh, the, the United States of America, has to do the same thing and even more pointedly with even more detailed explanation. They insult us. They 
it is one of the sad laws of, of, of reality that they have to be insulted back. They have to be dis, literally discredited. Uh, the, the, the people have to realize that they owe them no allegiance, that they owe the oligarchy no allegiance. And this is what Trump did. And this is what Trump, what, what frightened the oligarchy so much about Trump. This is why they went bananas uh, about, about Donald Trump. Unfortunately, that's not all it takes. Uh, it actually takes leadership. You can't say one thing, uh, speak loudly, and then, and then slink away and do another. I mean, uh, uh, Trump, were, to Trump, were Trump to try returning to the presidency, one might very well ask him, oh, will you reappoint uh, Christopher Wray to the FBI? Will you continue to, to keep... Uh, uh, classified the, uh, the the records concerning the the 2016 election, uh, what, and on and on and on and on. I mean, uh, Donald Trump blustered, and like many blusterers, <laughs> there was he was a, very largely an empty an empty bag. He, he seemed to sometimes be be commenting on his own presidency, right? As as, as an observer, yeah, of I mean, talk radio it, caller. It's, it's, uh, not, not serious. I mean, uh, can you imagine Theodore Roosevelt um, or any serious per person uh, railing against the intelligence agencies while continuing to, to appoint leaders there who railed against him? I mean, after all, he had total control over them. And yet he left them in a position to, to lie the the apotheosis of it all was during the campaign when uh, Joseph Biden was able to say correctly that 50 uh, prominent intelligence officers had uh, uh, determined that uh, the uh, the records of, on uh, on his son's laptop that implicated him in, in in corruption that those were a Russian plot those people had zero evidence, not just a little, but none, zero, totally fabricated. And Donald Trump couldn't bring himself to say, no, that's not true. These people are liars. And I know so because I, I look at the records. There is no evidence. Well, it's classified. No, it's not here. Everything on the subject is declassified by order of me. Maybe one just quick follow-up on, on the political structure of all this. So you're talking about national leadership. You've mentioned Ron DeSantis. Um, and obviously, we're talking about Republican capital R party individuals. Uh, and yet, I know you don't have a lot of confidence in the Republican Party as the instrument of this. But how, how do you, what, what is the instrument of it? Uh, you know, can it be a, a, a leader? Uh, who sort of gathers people unto himself, or does it have to be through some kind of institutional structure like like a Republican Party or or a successor to that party? Well, um, I, I think you, you've just formulated your own answer, that um, parties exist insofar as they are led. Who is and who is not part of a party depends on who is and who is not considered the leader thereof and what he suffers and does not suffer. Uh, if Donald Trump had been a personally respectable person, if he had been a serious person, serious in the full meaning of that word, then the Republican Party would have changed because the overwhelming majority of Republican voters are that way. They are not, the majority of Republican voters are not fans of Mitch McConnell. The majority of Republican voters are not aspiring junior members of the ruling class. Uh, and if a leader makes that abundantly clear, the party, you know, the Republican Party, I don't care what the name of it is. It, the name doesn't matter. What matters is what they follow. 
So on a scale of one to a hundred, as we close, how optimistic a hundred being absolutely one being not optimistic at all, pessimistic are you about the next 25, 30 years and our ability to work through this exodus? I refuse to answer on the grounds that it may tend to incriminate me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will give you, I, I will give you John Quincy Adams's answer, uh, which is that, that uh, Duty is ours. Results are God's. Amen. Well, thank you uh, very much for, uh, for joining us, Dr. Cotevilla. Uh, always, um, always awesome to, to have a conversation with you. Always enlightening. Much our, our pleasure for sure. Thank you You're very welcome. much. All right. Well, before we turn to the grade book and having enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Cotevilla very much, Dave, why don't you tell us about our plans for season three? Well, we thought through what would be the next writer or thinker to cover. And we had a couple individuals send us some, some ideas. But the more we thought about Tocqueville and his introducing uh, a new modern science of politics, we thought it would be good to go back to the ancient science of politics, at least uh, as practiced and thought through by Aristotle, uh, who you might even consider uh, Tocqueville's kind of ancient uh, equivalent. So starting on Friday, July 9th, yes, that means we're going to spend May and June and the July 4th without any shows, but nine weeks from now or so. We'll start back up on July 9th. So we're going to spend um, eight weeks going through the eight books of Aristotle's Politics. So a short summer term course on Aristotle to supplement our study of Tocqueville this spring. So if you know friends who've been waiting for a podcast on Aristotle, this summer is their opportunity on Democracy in America Day. So, I mean, I, I look, Matt, at, at our shows just overall, and our first season, you know, we, we grew and grew and grew and to this crescendo near the election. So you could tell that a lot of our listeners, I don't know if they're all our students or whatever, they were really interested, okay, in the election. Uh, and then we got uh, all, all Tocquevillian on them this, this spring. So is this going to be the case where, you know, the more and more we kind of pick up these great works from the Western corpus, the more we lose our audience or do we gain some of it back? That's, that's the hope. We're trying to do a, a kind of a Gideon thing here. We, we want those 300 that are really committed more than the, the 10,000 that might, might have fears or, or lap the water the wrong way. Quality over quantity. Exactly. <laughs> if we get it down to two, we'll be all set. <laughs> exactly. Just <laughs> be a conversation be between the two of us. There we go. <laughs> All right, we're going to turn to the gray book now and said at the top of the show that we were going to grade the two big speeches from Wednesday night. First, President Biden's speech to Congress and then the Republican response by Senator Scott. So let's start with the president's speech. Just want to kind of walk, walk through the speech a little bit, section by section, and uh, get your thoughts as, as we do that. It was remarkable how low a bar he set at the beginning of the speech. He says, we began his administration with the worst pandemic in a century, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Of course, the third and fourth quarters of last year were anything but that. But, but um, if you go back to last March, that was certainly the case. The worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Uh, apparently, January 6th beats December 7th, 1941, and September 11th, 2001, and the assassinations of Kennedy and, and others. But okay, so um, now the good news, he says, is after just 100 days, I can report to the nation, America is on the move again. So somehow in 100 days, he turned it around from the worst pandemic economy and attack on democracy. And, and here we are on the move. Uh, problems not necessarily solved, but, but on the move again. Well, I mean, uh, the pandemic is better uh, than it was uh, certainly in January uh, with vaccinations. Um, the economic picture of the country certainly looks better now that we're looking to open things back up. Uh, the latter two points, uh, well, the last point I should say, the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War, that one's outstanding. Uh, that one is still at play as we just heard in our conversation with Dr. Cotavilla. We are not uh, at a peace with one another. One of the things that's just uh, an annoying feature of our present politics is just how much credit presidents claim for everything, 
right? And, and how much agency they attribute to themselves and their decisions uh, as if, if we were really in as bad a situation as you described, a hundred days of doing anything uh, would be able to turn that around at the presidential level. But anyway, he gives a lot of credit to his American recovery plan and then begins to shift the conversation to two new plans, part of his build back better overall approach. First was what he calls the American jobs plan, which is a a once in a generation investment in America itself, according to his characterization. That's the infrastructure bill that spends money on lots of things besides infrastructure. And then it was the America families plan. So they don't get a lot of points for originality in in the names of these bills, but um, certainly points for thinking big and bold. He also called that once in a generation, a once in a generation investment in families. And so you put it all together, uh, we're $6 trillion in with these three plans, uh, $6 trillion in. And so naturally the next question is how are you gonna pay for that? And well, there's, there's no plan to pay for the recovery plan, but the other two he says can be paid for by asking corporations and the wealthy to pay their fair share, uh, perhaps a once in a generation tax increase on top of the once in a generation spending plans. And he argued that if you do all this, that there would be economic growth and millions of jobs in addition to uh, the propping up of the family and the rebuilding of our, of our infrastructure. Yeah, the only problem left is major, his dog, and the dog biting incidents that are going on in the White House. Was that mentioned in the speech, Matt? Uh, I didn't notice that. It was a fairly long speech, and I, I tried to read it carefully, but I did not see any mention of major. But yeah, there has been concern expressed about whether he can be a, a permanent resident of the White House safely. Well, I mean, I, in terms of reception to the speech, I, I think it'd be a little bit like a conversation that I had with my father-in-law, a great guy. And I said, well, what do you think of Biden thus far? And, he, and he's like, I pretty much like everything, but that dog keeps on biting people. I'm, I'm not making that up. He's got to do something with that dog. So uh, everything with the policies are good, but really chose right the wrong dog in the White House. That's the beauty of democratic politics, because actually the dog can get you right? You, you can do everything right. And if you get the dog wrong, then you might, you might lose, <laughs> you, you might lose the next election on the dog. There, there's, there's no doubt about that. Right. Think about Michael Dukakis and the helmet, right? There's uh, these images you just can't get out of your mind and you got a bad dog. What's that say about the owner? Cujo. You yeah. Yeah. Leave Cujo in the white house. No, can't do that. <laughs> That's right. So as he moved on, he covered a whole bunch of other issues and basically the, the general setup was, here's a problem, here's a common sense bill that will solve the problem. And then he had this concluding line, the country supports it, Congress should act. And so, although obviously there's not a lot of bipartisanship, if you mean by that, people voting across the aisle, there's, there's not Republican votes for the bills that he's pushing through. Um, but he argues the American people broadly defined are behind him. And so even if the representatives aren't doing their job to join in pursuing these democratic initiatives, the people nevertheless support him. So in that sense, he's, he's doing the unity thing he promised, even though the actual votes on the bills are only coming from Democrats. Yeah. And I think that is there a unity that we want to move beyond this pandemic? For the most part, I think there is. Uh, is there a unity behind a stronger economy? Of, of course there is. But is there the political unity that was promised in his inaugural address? And I don't think there is. And I think the reason why there is not is that there hasn't been any of that bipartisan effort that was so promised uh, back when he began his presidency. And it doesn't look as if that's going to come anytime soon. Uh, if, if it happens to come, it may. It may. However, it's a, a large mountain to climb. It may produce s- some greater level of unity. But that has not been the plan of the attack by the Biden administration thus far. And hence the disunity that we saw back in November, so in January, is still present even now as we enter into May. And to me, the thing that's most remarkable is how the kind of bare majoritarianism of all this. So you've got a really narrow majority in the House, uh, of course, a tie in the Senate broken only by the Vice President, Kamala Harris, and he's got a 53% approval rating. So he's got a bare majority approval rating as well, 
And so you're talking about doing two once in a generation things without the mandate that normally comes with once in a generation things. It's one thing when FDR does that, he's got 70% of the Congress with him and he's just won a massive victory over his Republican opponent, right? Then you say, well, the nation is behind me. That's not the situation here. And yet President Biden seems to be proceeding as if it were. All right, Dave, so give me a grade. Uh, a grade for the, the president's speech and overall vision as he celebrates his 100 days in office. Well, speech has been the norm for him in, in kind of touting his progressive policies as common sense uh, and them uh, those policies being very uh, well-received by his progressive base. So if, he, if I'm voting as a progressive, I, I'm giving him an A, uh, A minus uh, for what he's offering and, and how he's presenting it. If you judge him by the level of unity, which is maybe the thing that we need most in this country, uh, you're near F here, D minus F. Uh, I do like the fact that uh, the tone is is a little bit better, but let me average all those together and, and, and come up with somewhat like a D plus for the speech. Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking about something like a low C. I, overall, the, the the argument is that the things he's doing are just kind of common sense, normal things, and they're just not. Right? You, you have to acknowledge there's you're talking about spending six trillion dollars on top of the normal budget. We've never had an annual budget of six trillion dollars, and he's saying on top of the annual budget, we're going to spend an extra six trillion. That's not a small ask. And, and the tax increases to pay for that and all the rest. These are major initiatives that, that aren't just about common sense and kind of building from the things that we all know to be true. And I think some more acknowledgement of that would, would be helpful, even if he just wants to get the things through. That, I think that would be necessary. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think the bills will be passed, which I think at the end of the day, if you're judging or grading <clears throat> the speech and the policy by that, then you you really are closer to a D or an F because you're not getting the things that you want to get. You may be pleasing your base with your rhetoric and your proposals, but if, if they don't come to fruition, unless you can absolutely force them through, uh, then you're in trouble. And I just don't think, given those margins you mentioned and that bare thin majoritarianism that's been practiced, that these things are going to be passed. All right. Now let's turn to Senator Scott's reply. Always a challenge, right? Usually the, the theater of the State of the Union address or the joint session of Congress address is, is very difficult to equal when you're just a, a speaker, a you know, senator trying to find a backdrop that, that can match that. Uh, I think he probably had going from the fact that it wasn't a normal backdrop. It was not the whole Congress and everybody there that the, the, the feel, the vibe of the normal city address was, was missing because of COVID. Um, but really attacked, I think, head on, this idea of, of the quest for unity. And you know, his, his principal charge was that Joe Biden campaigned on unifying the nation and that he hasn't done that. And that in some ways he's gone out of his way not to do that, right? that he's uh, allowed, if not in his own voice, although sometimes in his own voice, allowed those around him to make issues more divisive than they have to be, especially issues related to race, as he mentioned at a number of points in his speech. He talks about education and the fact that he says the, the, the best case for school choice has been made in our lifetimes by the fact that public schools haven't reopened while private and religious schools have, uh, despite the fact that there's been no real scientific reason not to have those schools open. Um, he talked about the fact that the previous COVID relief bills had all been approved by the Senate with 90 plus votes Whereas, again, as we said, a, a bare majority to get the latest one through in the Biden administration. So I think you made a powerful case, Dave, that the unity we were promised we didn't get, that there was another way forward, that, that especially when it comes to issues related to race, there's a, a, a toxicity in the language that Biden and his allies are using that is really corrosive of our politics and completely unnecessary and unwarranted by things like the Georgia voting law, which we've had occasion to talk about in the past. What did you make of his speech? Well, I think Senator Scott, and actually, as, you, as we pivoted to Senator Scott's speech, I, I took out my water bottle because I didn't want to have a Marco Rubio moment Rubio. where I was lunging seven feet away from my computer. So you can see right now, I've got my water bottle next to me. But no, I, um, 
just aside, I, I think that uh, what needs to be done in a speech like this is you need to see what your opponent's center of gravity is. And I think the center of gravity of, uh, of the Joe Biden administration is, his, is its argument, it's not a good argument, that it's unifying the country and you attack uh, on that basis, which I think that uh, he did well using uh, anecdotes that are, are very clear. If you have relief bills that are passed by 90, 95 people, and now all of a sudden you're forcing bills through, through a Kamala Harris vote, that's not unity. Uh, if you're constantly attacking the other side as racist, that, that's not unity. Uh, if you're suggesting that it's unpatriotic after you've been vaccinated not to wear a mask, well, that's not unity either. So I think uh, on those fronts, he did a really, really good job of kind of uh, pulling off um, uh, the veneer and, and showing, you know, the I administration. The mask. Pulling oh, off pulling the mask. Out. Excuse me. He's done a good job of pulling off, yes, the mask um, and, and showing uh, this administration for what it is on this key issue of how do we move forward together as a country. All right. So you got a grade for Senator Scott? Straight A. Yeah. Presidential A. Yeah, I agree. All right. Let's turn to De Tocqueville's crystal balls. We wrap up the show. Uh, we've got a lot of quarterbacks to talk about here, Dave. So way back on episode six, we made predictions about whether nine different quarterbacks would be traded before the, for the NFL draft. And of course the draft started last night. And so now we can judge how we did. Um, okay. I think is the answer. You were, you were pretty trade happy back then. Um, if you recall the very, the, the first seven people that I gave you, you said would all be traded until we got to the, the not so good quarterbacks that you thought might be released <laughs> and switch teams that way. As it turned out, only two of those seven were traded bottom line. We each got four out of our nine predictions, correct. And that leaves you at 25 and 18 and me at 18 and 25. Now, of course, last week we predicted quarterbacks as well. And we predicted where the five leading quarterbacks would go in the first round. Uh, we both got Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. Impressive. Those were gimmies. Yeah, those were the gimmies. Un unfortunately, after that, it wasn't that great. Uh, I did get Mac Jones going to the Patriots. So I'm proud of that. I thought they'd have to trade up, honestly, to, to get him, but they didn't. And they got him at 15. Uh, but we both had Justin Fields going to the 49ers, whereas he fell to the Bears and uh, we had different views on where Trey Lance would land, but neither of them was the 49ers. So anyway, three and two for me, two and three for you. So now we're at 27 and 21 for you, 21 and 27 for me. I, I like to keep the, the symmetry there at least. We've got two more picks to wrap it up with 50 picks even on the season. All right. What's the big event this weekend? Quarterback related. The Kentucky Derby, of course, right? Your favorite quarterback loves to go to the Kentucky Derby, bring all his bros down there. Lots of Tom Brady photos with, with Gronk and Edelman and, and all the rest of the gang. Kentucky Derby, we got 20 horses in the race. Not easy to pick a winner, let's face it. So we're going to make it a little bit easier. The favorite is essential quality, Dave, as I know you know. I've uh, been following his career for some time. And Rock Your World is the second favorite. Okay, so one's two to one, one's five to one. You put that together, you do the math. And basically, that's saying there's a 50-50 shot that one of those two horses will win. So the first question is, do you take essential quality and rock your world? Or do you take the field for the win? Oh, essential quality and rock your world. You got to know essential quality's pedigree, Matt, to really yeah. make, I think, a good decision here. Okay. Uh, he comes from a line uh, of, of Seattle Slough, uh, a secretariat. I mean, these are major horses in 20th century racing history. So I, I think, uh, you know, what's it called? Bet the gray, uh, bet the gray and the pedigree, uh, take essential quality who I think will win the race. It, um, if, if not rock your world, will take it and, uh, go home okay. money in your pocket. All right. I'm gonna go the other way on this one. I'm going to take the field. I'm going to take my chances with the other 18 horses. All right. So then our second question, there are nine horses, Field of 20, of course, there's some long shots here, right? So you got nine horses with odds of 30 to one or worse. Quite a few with 50 to one, actually. So the question I've got for you, second question, will one of those horses finish in the top three? When place or show, one of those nine horses with a 30 to one odds or worse? So here's where I kind of just 
go through the names and I say, are there any names of uh, 30 to one horses or more that I like? Okay. Brooklyn strong has a New York city angle. Yep. Keep, keep me in mind. My sainthood helium. Oh, wow. Hidden stash. I don't know what was going on there, but sounds like a little California. Yeah. (laughs) Colorado, Washington state. Here's one Bourbonic. So I'm going to say, yes, one of those third, I, I'm going to say number 20 Bourbonic comes in okay, third. You like, you like Bourbonic. Yeah. I like, I like one of them to come in third. Yeah. Now you skipped over a soup and sandwich, which is more my style. Oh, so, all right. Soup and sandwich. Well, and, and a bourbon. So there you right, go. Right. That, that's not bad. Yeah. I get a, get a grilled cheese with maybe a little bit of soup to go with it. So, all right. Yeah. I'm going to take that, that group as well. I think, I think one of them is going to at least slip into the, the top three positions. Um, 20 horses. There's going to be a lot of, Crazy stuff as there always is with Kentucky Derby. So my guess is one of these long shots can can pull off a, a top three position. All right, Dave. Well, that's going to do it. A little extra time maybe for this episode, but uh, you're going to be miss- missing us for the next several months. So, uh, you know, catch up on all these old episodes. We've got to get those downloads up a little bit. And in the meantime, don't forget to like the show and follow the show, subscribe to the show, Review share it with friends show. share it with friends right let's let's we, get the drum beat going we, we still don't have folk this is key we don't have not had one person from montana north dakota or wyoming listen to the show every other state i think we have covered other than those three okay there's got to be someone that this audience knows in those three states where we can we can we can get those states on our map just to get to all 50 states, you know, travel all through them. And you're like, oh, I went to 37 of them. We want to hit all 50 states. That's a lot of geography that we really yes. got. There's a lot of area there. If not a lot of people. All right. Let's make that our mission, Montana, Wyoming, and North Dakota. Let's get it done. People before July 4th. That's, that's our mission as a, as a group. All right. And if you, if you know somebody, you can email us, we will make, we will do the personal touch democracy in America today at gmail.com. Also connect with us on Instagram at Democracy in America Today. Take care and we'll talk to you in a bit.